Hi, Vanessa. Hey, Adam. How are you doing? Apart from, you know, boiling and rage. Yeah, that, that I am. <laughs> it's been a rageful week. Yeah, it really has. That's why we even started our little ranting routine on the social media. By the way, I have a gripe about our gripes because... Wait, wait, wait. Okay, wait. Before we get there, welcome to Uncertain <laughs> oh, Things. Hey, welcome. <laughs> the podcast about uncertain things. In a minute, we're going to get to our conversation with Caitlin Flanagan, mm-hmm. writer for The Atlantic, brilliant cultural commentator, a provocateur, some might say, but but I, I, I don't think the title uh, is appropriate at all because she is, in my view, thoughtful and sensitive in, in all her takes, albeit with a scathing style. But before we get to her, Vanessa did bring up uh, an interesting point. Last night, we started our tradition of ranting our minds on Instagram, and Vanessa brought forth a gripe that she has with the current controversy around translators. Do you need to actually have the cultural baggage of the work that you're translating or commentating on or writing about in order to do it justice? And Vanessa, do you want to set it up? Sure. I mean, yeah, referencing the the Amanda Gorman controversy that's been happening first in the Netherlands, now in Spain. Amanda Gorman is obviously the poet who recited her poem during Biden's inauguration. She received international attention and her work was being translated into different countries. In the past couple of weeks, there was news that a few publishers, specifically in the Netherlands and Spain, have decided to replace the person in charge of the translation seemingly because they weren't black. So like everything else, this opened a call war front. And generally, Vanessa and I agreed, uh, which is surprising, that the standard should be less about literally personally matching the socioeconomic, cultural background, the identity, the gender, racial uh, context of the author, but taking it seriously and doing your work, studying it, researching it, learning about it, immersing yourself in it. A lot of research. Use empathy and the craft of writing to do right by the original work. Of course, if you do produce lazy, shallow stereotypes because you phoned it in, then maybe you should be dragged over the public square. And there's nothing wrong, and and probably there is something great about wanting to encourage people of that cultural context being involved in the translation, but that doesn't necessarily need to be the standard. Um, And in the abstract, I still agree with the points that we were making, but when we we got a very thoughtful commentary uh, on that post that was really digging into the specifics of the case in the Netherlands, and I had only read kind of cursorily about the Catalan um, uh, example, and I, I kind of feel a little like bad that I didn't do any due diligence. I mean, the whole point of social media is to have, I guess, like to quickly talk about what's off the top of your head, and I feel like it was a little bit of a hot take without knowing all of the nuances of the Netherlands example. I mean, I don't know if you read that comment and what you thought about it. Oh, it was it was fantastic to see just how how little we understand the full picture, even on, on such a simple event like this. Yeah, you're all welcome to inspect and engage with this thoughtful comment on our humble Instagram page. Vanessa, you've made your amends. Now to Caitlin. So we didn't plan it this way, but this conversation sets up a series of talks that we've already recorded, all of which kind of sort of circling around the problem of political homelessness and the challenge of asserting values that you see as the heart of a free and healthy society, even as your own group, tribes, environment are moving further and further away from you. 
each of the people that we conversed with brought a very different perspective on this experience of political loneliness, which is made even more interesting considering that each of them is situated on a very different coordinate on the political spectrum. First up, there's Caitlin, and she comes from a traditional American liberal perspective, emphasizing empathy, cultural sensitivity, openness, tolerance. But increasingly, in her recent work, she's also motivated by an antagonism to conformity, being sensitive to the relationship between the individual and the cultural pressures that act on them. She's keenly concerned with uh, forced conformity even when it comes from one's own side, because the social pressure to conform is dangerous in and of itself, regardless of the ideals in the name of which it's perpetrated. And then Yuval Levine, who's a brilliant conservative scholar, is going to make a very different case, and in some places contradictory, and, and pin our social malaise on the decline of public institutions, as befits a conservative. And then lastly, we're going to have Newsweek opinion editor Badia Ungar-Sargon join us to add the Marxist economics materialist perspective to this discussion. I recommend to our listeners to take these interviews as a set because we've practically recorded them back to back. And honestly, probably you'll be able to tell, even though we're not going to release them in order, that we were in the same headspace. The, the, the threads of conversation are almost zigzagging between the different talks. And hopefully there will be some interesting confluence as a result. We hope this works. You, you can tell us. That said, one thing that I will say that's kind of specific to Caitlin and her writing, which I appreciated, is that she's not, she's not afraid to touch on subjects that might seem like unimportant, I guess, and then unpack the ways in which they are important. For example, I think she likes to write about just like everyday life. She likes to write about, you know, uh, from time to time, she'll talk about tabloids or what's happening there. Things that like we actually grapple with um, on a daily basis and then but don't often rise to the level of like literature that must be, you know, analyzed. And so I really like that she does that. And I and, and in researching her for this conversation, it was really great to just go back into the archives of her essays and see all the different things that she's written about and the perspectives that she brought. And what was particularly refreshing for me was that, you know, she's a feminist who's very open about the ways that feminism lets down women and it was it was very refreshing to meet it because that's kind of how I had felt in the past but hadn't necessarily articulated it and so it was it was really fun to dig into her archives and then have this conversation live yeah I I generally recommend all our listeners to do like Vanessa and dive into Caitlin's archives because we are Long form, though, this conversation is it doesn't really really begin to give you the flavor of complexity over her views and, you know, her columns in The Atlantic are just so funny, erudite, and incredibly human. So just go read some of her work before bedtime. But for now, we touched on some of the themes that she explores in her columns, including trauma, sex, feminism, and the tension between wanting to be a culturally dynamic, evolving, open and tolerant society, and the need to be also tolerant and understanding towards the people who are struggling to catch up or who are truly committed to a more traditional worldview. And this, of course, raises a million questions, like what does it actually mean to live in a free society? What does it mean to be a truly empowered, liberated woman? And we get into an interesting argument about this with Caitlin, especially about sex, actually. But wherever you fall on these issues, I do ask that you listen compassionately, because I think that despite our disagreements and agreements, 
uh, the Vanessa, Caitlin, myself, we're all motivated by a genuine love, I guess, of humanity, which is funny coming from a misanthrope. But I think it's just important to acknowledge that we are all coming at these disagreements from genuine good faith and a desire to understand things better, even when our analysis is wrong or we make mistakes or just disagree. Okay, that's enough. Uh, speaking of good faith, follow us on uncertain.substack.com. Follow us on the Instagram where you can watch that story we talked about at the top. Yep, and generally uncertain pod on the social media. Also, if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. It really helps a lot. And with that, let the arguments begin. Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I was very excited to get the invitation. <laughs> I, I was very excited to send it. Just to get us started, in case some of our listeners don't know your work, who are you? That's hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. I write for The Atlantic. I've written there for about 20 years. I was a two-year student. I went to The New Yorker, but I came back. And um, I've written some books, but really it's my Atlantic work that's ongoing and my f- subjects are just always things I'm interested in. I'm always interested in any kind of what's called a culture war. I'm always interested in feminism and how it's changing and how it's offering things that sometimes it can't deliver or offering things that a lot of women don't want and then they don't want to be feminists, which I can understand. And I'm interested in the arts. So I write about movies. And But the main thing I think I'm known for, if I'm known at all, is... I don't want to say controversial points for the sake of being controversial, like a shock jock or something, but I very often see that the uniform opinion about some event or some book or some movie is, it can't be right. People can't really believe that. They're sort of repeating the thing that they think you're supposed to think. And I don't have any interest in that. So I, I'll often go very against the grain. And, and it's not that I'm attracted to, as I say, being controversial, but I get very excited when I see some topic and everybody is like a cookie cutter. They all have the same response. And I'll think there's no way that this is all independently arrived at authentic responses to an event or a work of literature or a movie or a cultural change. This is responding to other people's responses and wanting to prove that they have the right opinions. So I'll get excited by something like that. That'll kind of draw me to it. It's funny, Vanessa and I spent a long time last night figuring out, prioritizing our topics, etc. And you've just waded us into the, 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 the issue that we said, we'll leave for the, for the <laughs> ending. We'll probably not touch it. Okay, oh, sorry. <laughs> we got that out of the way, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, so it was basically what gets you started working on a piece, like, for me, it's easy. It's it's rage and anger. Get you up in the morning, right? Absolutely, it's delicious, <laughs> and and sometimes I, I have to go out of my way to to seek it out. But usually, it just falls to my lap. But you brought up something else, which is this idea of a consensus. That whenever you start smelling a consensus forming around some idea of practice, you know there's probably a story there. You know something is going on because it's a self-sustaining beast. The more people agree on something, the more difficult it is to disagree. So as a journalist, when you notice public opinion solidifying around a consensus, you can probably tell something is off and maybe should start ringing the alarm bells. So would you say this is what gets you started on a a piece, sniffing out the consensus? Well, you know, it's funny about anger there. 
Orwell said that he started all of his days with telegrams and anger. So he got in, you know, he read the newspaper, got angry, sent off all his angry telegrams, and then he was ready to write. I think, you know, you need something to motivate you. But um, yeah, I just, if it's in a field that, as I say, that I'm sort of interested in, not sort of geopolitics or something that I, I have no expertise in, and I'm sure it's even more full of, of, you know, thoughts that don't make sense. But my father, who was an intellectual and a writer, an historian, and he would always say to me as an adolescent, I'd be, oh, I'd be on some rant, uh, this, I just am certain about this. And he would always listen to me. And then he would say, what's the best argument of the other side? And I hated that exercise <laughs> because I didn't ever want to, I didn't want to think about those things. But so often nowadays I'll read something and they don't know what this, they don't even know enough about the best argument of the other side to dismiss it. So whatever they're doing is sort of is sort of hollow. It's not informed. They're afraid of their own thoughts. They're afraid if they honestly confront something um, that their own thoughts will be against the grain of accepted thought. So they don't even want to engage in the thought exercise. And I think that's really creating a, a just forget about political implications. It's creating a dullness in our culture especially in literary culture and especially in journalism it's just everybody's got to be the same maybe someone's prose style is better maybe someone has more access to the person at the center of a story but nobody's going to make any waves and i think you know coming up when i did you know being born in 61 and so in the 70s it's the great age of new journalism and we didn't even know that that's what it was called yet, but you'd just be waiting for the magazines to show up and you'd be reading Hunter Thompson, Gaitley's, you'd be reading those guys, they're breaking all the rules and they're just saying what they believe with absolutely no, um, no tribute paid at all to the consensus opinion. And it was such exciting time to read journalism and now half the time, I just want to go to sleep when I read, even in some of the high-end magazines. So I just grew up loving magazines and magazine writing, and and I'd just like to bring back that old tradition a little bit. Right. And it's not just a conformity of opinion. It's also a conf it, it does feel like a conformity of style as well. There's like so much. I think the the word Adam uses it's so dour. Everything's so serious. Self -serious. There's very little. Yeah, very little like life or humor or injection of personality. Uh, it's so hard to find. Well, some of these places have a strong house style that's kind of evolved, but is is kind of across the platform of of all the writers on that particular platform. But Dower is right. We're just supposed to accept that everything is at its worst right now, that human civilization has never confronted a moment, anything like this before, that we have no reserves, either intellectual, moral, personal, to endure it, that we shouldn't, young people shouldn't even have children. It's that horrible a time that the human race should not even perpetuate itself and that's just such an ahistorical viewpoint. It's so completely ignorant of the times plentiful and in living memory that human beings have overcome tremendous, tremendous challenges. And that we're all on the verge of many people are already vaccinated and many, most everyone else who wants to be in the West anyway, is on the verge of getting vaccinated. 
And a year ago, it was a mystery disease. Nobody knew when or if there'd be a vaccine. Just shows us that human beings rise to occasions and will rise to the challenge of global change, climate change. We're going to rise to these challenges and we have a lot more in us, a lot more resilience. And I think a lot of people haven't really been tested yet because we've had a lot of peace around the world, relatively speaking, because you know the, the, some wars have ended. There's been, um, there, there's just been a period of a bit of stasis in a lot of areas. And so people haven't had that sense of, you know, in my generation, if you talk to people in my parents' generation, they've been through a lot, you know, all the dads had been to war, you know, the mothers had come up at this time where all the young men were gone and were dying and they didn't know if they'd ever, you know, have a romantic partner, let alone, a, you know, a husband and have children. They endured and they got through things. And I think we need to let help young people in particular to realize we have as a as a species, we have a lot of gas in the tank or a lot of rechargeable carbon neutral batteries <laughs> in our <laughs> whatever we're fueling up. <laughs> but I, but I want to go back to the to the style uh, um, uh, point that Vanessa brought up because it's not just that you that the dourness comes from a, a sense of fatalism. There's also the feeling that if you dare to inject some levity and irony into the way you look at things, then you're not taking the issues seriously and maybe even betray the cause. And I think this is part of what makes your work, speaking for myself, I suspect many others, so attractive. It's your mercilessly lacerating style that nobody's safe or immune from, least of all yourself. Thank you. And do, do you also feel that, that there's a cultural deficiency in humor? Uh, you know, just last week we interviewed one of my mentors. I fucking hate the word, but, you know, whatever. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we sat together for a drink and we found ourselves exchanging lists of all the magazines we had to unsubscribe from just oh. because of how drainingly self-serious and predictable all these magazines have become. I specifically remember talking about uh, an example from The New Yorker, your old employer, it had uh, a review that for the most part was great. And I, I won't go into details, but it was uh, retrospective about a, a certain filmmaker. And it was, for the most part, it was really interesting. And it kind of like took me back to what I thought, you know, journaling should be about. It was funny, and it connected the body of work with history and the current moment. But then out of nowhere, and without any clear connection with the rest of the argument in the article, there was this shoehorned the Pravda-esque disclaimer saying, well, we should also take into account the fact that he was a white man. Right. And then the article goes on. And again, doesn't refer to that anymore. It doesn't really explore the question of, of how, yes. how whiteness relates to the actual story because it doesn't. It was not what this article was about. They just had to insert it. Uh, and it immediately gives you a window into everything else that writer believes. The minute they feel that they have to... Uh, um, indemnify themselves of having said something positive about a white male. The, the minute they say that, you kind of know everything that person believes or thinks they believe, and they no longer become an iconoclastic, interesting writer, even if they, you know, kind of rise to the occasion to write most of an interesting review. At the end, they are going to disavow it in some significant way because they they just feel they must, must, must 
go along with the crowd and writers don't break through much to readers when they're just in the in the herd. Did you read about Ishiguro, who's one of my favorite writers, a British author, wrote uh, Remains of the Day, Never Let Me Go. He just yeah. spoke out about how worried he is that young authors are self-censoring because they work in constant dread that they might cross a line that they're not even aware of. Can you imagine... Is that the whole point of literature? To have the courage to use your imagination and tell a, a deeper story about, about some fundamental truth about society or the human condition? What's the point of being a writer if, if you can only work out of the mindset that you need to know your place and to be dutifully pandering? Yes. I know that the self-censorship with the young is taking place 100%, and it's taking place on college campuses where, and to some extent in high school, where the students know, okay, the professor has an opinion. The professor has a political opinion. If I repeat the opinion, I'm gonna get an A or I'll at least get a B and then I can do a good job on it and get the A. Whereas if I say what I really think, I'm just giving myself all these layers of difficulty before getting a good mark in my class that will get let, let me go forward to the future. So you have these silenced, young people who are paying fees to go to university and whose parents are probably paying them so that they can, you know, have this intellectual experience. And all they're doing is repeating the doctrinaire positions of some super leftist college professor. Um, you know, that's why the humanities are dying. That's why people in the States anyway, you know, these great departments, English, history, I, you know, to me, these were the art history, the departments that I was forged in. And now it's not just that STEM is the future and STEM is the higher paid jobs and all of that is true, but it's that young people see there's not a lot of worth for me. If I'm gonna read literature for four years, but not be asked to respond to it authentically from my experience of the world, my experience of reading, if, if that's what it's going to be, and if it's gonna be a collection of books that don't really have a coherent organization you know, fine if they're from non-Western cultures by non-white writers, absolutely fantastic. We should be reading all the time and reading everything there is. But when they're just jammed together in a course because they're by non-white writers, 40 years ago, that would be a good idea for a course because people didn't read outside a certain canon. But today for that to be the course is just very, very dull for these young people. Although I would su I'd suggest that the causality is probably reverse it's uh, the 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 changing economic reality of of institutions and the fact that people who in the first place get their ba in in literature have very limited prospects of becoming professors or or writers with the dying of the, the publication industry and as a result you have more more incentive to make sure that you really get the right grade or really get on the teacher's good graces as slochowski said in our previous interview like when you have limited resources you you can't afford to be an iconoclast anymore oh exactly Exactly. And, and, and there's great danger in the humanities. I mean, I think in STEM, oddly enough, there's much more intellectual freedom as you try something, you iterate, you are an engineer, you build something, you know, it doesn't go to Mars, it just crashes to the ground. And nobody says, we've got to haul you off to re-education. They say, I wonder what he's going to do next time. I wonder how he's going to build it next time. And that's what the humanities are supposed to be, just constantly challenging your thinking, challenging the thinking of other writers, looking at it from an historical perspective. 
and absolutely the new perspectives on sort of critical race theory, these things that get so lambasted, these are worthwhile ways of looking at the world. They're not the only worthwhile way of looking at the world. So the young person should be able to evaluate these different systems of knowledge, different ideas, and by the end of study have some sort of idea what she thinks is true, where she's planted her flag. And, you know, and so to take, to study something like English that doesn't have a clear job track, to have to put in the identical opinions to everyone else, and then to graduate maybe once or twice, you made a mistake and said what you thought and ended up with a B minus. It's just a total flattening. And all these professors, they don't see they're putting themselves out of business. I mean, American colleges are closing down these those small liberal arts colleges. There's no market for that. It's, it's just unless you're a very famous college with a big reputation, um, people are already seeing the liberal arts, which to me is the whole name of the game, you know, for my life. Uh, it's not worthwhile to them. Last question about writing. My my mom, who's a singer songwriter and an author in in Israel, she 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 is pretty. She's hyper iconoclastic. She 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 seeks argument and 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 disagreeableness in her work. But they she 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 stays away as as, as a strong taboo from three topics, which are uh, kids, death. And another one that I don't remember. Oh, what is it? It might come back to me. But, okay, but later. Kids, kids death. Death and, and, and the, third, the third mysterious topic. That's so uh, interesting. Made me wonder if there is anything that you wouldn't write about. Well, I'm very, very consciously aware in a way that I think is productive that we're in a moment of great racial reckoning, as everyone says, in America and that it's not a time to be flippant in any way on this subject, um, which is why the subject is dealt in such a lockstep way, and in a certain sense, it's dealt with in an ahistorical way. You know, the country's very engaged with, I don't know if you've heard of the 1619 Project at the New York Times, which is a totally valid, I mean, very, a great resource of primary documents and reflections, but the notion is that America did something particularly grotesque in, in this slavery that they, you know, allowed for a hundred years of the nation, the first hundred years. And that's a historical at that, that, that by this in the 17th century, certainly when she's writing about 1619, the world was enslaved, you know, the world was even either enslaved or they were indentured servants, or they were literally serfs. And there was no idea of universal freedom for all. There, just, there was just a tiny, tiny, tiny group of people at the very top of these structures all around the world that enjoyed anything like freedom. So for these men, it's, it's grotesque that they were writing about freedom and yet acknowledging slavery and many of them owning slaves. That's all very shocking when you first learn it as an American kid. But to say that it was, it was a particularly grotesque thing is inaccurate. They had done something incredible by saying, even just to say we're talking about white male landowners. Those are the people we're saying could be voters. And we recognize that they 
you know, their biggest fear was that a bunch of dummies would get together and elect an idiot, which we did four years ago. So they knew what they, you know, what they were putting in our hands when they gave us this freedom. But it's, so I think it's completely ahistoric to say something uniquely bad happened in America. On the same token, I think that there, I absolutely agree that the legacy of systems even unacknowledged on any level by a lot of non-black people in America um, have had a long, much longer uh, um, time living through history in some respects to this very day and that we haven't known, we've slowly gotten better. I mean, this idea that we're at this racial nadar, you know, four years ago, as you know, four and a half years ago, we had our black president, he was elected twice. There were Republicans who voted for him. There were tons of white people who voted for him. To say that we are in some backward time of retrenchment or reactionary spirit is not accurate. Do we have race problems? They are absolutely real. They're very big. I think I've always thought they might be serious enough to drive the nation apart and end the nation. I, I think that's true. But to say that we're in the worst time ever when there's, you know, more black students at top colleges than ever before, in top law schools, in positions of power, in the presidency, the most admired person in the whole world is Michelle Obama. You know, certainly in America, that's true. And to say that that puts us in a time when nothing has changed and nothing has gotten better, that's not true either. That's very interesting. And I think I share some of that instinctively. And aside for America's racial reckoning, is there any other topic you'd steer away from? If I'm interested in it, I'll always write about it. Um, you know, that's, it, there's sometimes when you feel like I should really write about X, you know, and I'll just, it's like pushing some heavy boulder up a hill. Like I was writing about Elon Omar at one point and there were just so many layers of American political structure and Minnesota politics and state politics and senatorial, you know, na United States senatorial politics and and I just thought, you know, I'm not the person for this. I mean, I wrote something, it was okay, but I'm really, there are, I'm frustrated because there aren't a lot of people who are really good on such a subject who are allowed to write in the mainstream press. That's what will impel me sometimes to say, I need to suit up and show up for this because I have enough cloud and age to kind of get things through. Um, so I'll say somebody's got to do this, you know, somebody's got to say that there are a lot of girls in certain Midwest states who are getting um, genital cutting, that that, that that is a cultural tradition which does persist. And I'm sorry, this is America. Those are our girls. And we don't do that to our girls. And this isn't something you can say, I don't answer questions about when you are, what lifted you to power was, you know, a very, very tightly uh, knit uh, Somali-American community. So I think that there are a lot of questions that we need to ask and that the mainstream media doesn't want to have asked or answered. I'm wondering, Adam, if we should go into our, our feminism questions okay. or if you want to ask one more media question. Find my beverage. Okay, yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to, to move away from the navel-gazy media <laughs> questions, but if you, have, if you want to do some more gazing. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get into this as in our conversation because you know, the media question is just 
how do you situate yourself in the current media landscape, which I think is going to come through, yeah. but kind of pivoting to more the topic of feminism um, and the ways in which we talk about women today. I'm just, I guess, first of all, just to kind of level set and, and introduce our, our listenership to you and where, how do you position yourself? How do you describe your relationship to feminism? How do you see it existing right now? And serendipitously, this is w- uh, Women's Day, so... Oh, yeah, happy right. 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 Women's Day. <laughs> Um, Well, I'm so old. I'm 59. So I've seen a lot of phases of it. Yeah. I'll say as a child, um, I was profoundly attracted to the notion of being a mother and being a wife and being at home. And I was profoundly attracted to the notion that it seemed like a really good division of labor that one of the people would go out and make the money and one of the people would stay home and make the family. And I was more interested in that than I was in the other thing. And I'm still more interested in that. Um, When people write about their experiences at home, when women write about that, I'm interested in it. And feminism has a lot of disdain for that. It has for the last 40 years. Um, They'll always say, well, any choice is fine, but you should lean into your job at at Facebook. You know, it's really frowned upon for an intelligent woman to step out of the workforce and to live together on a family on one salary. So I think that the feminist movement is it, it always evolves, but it is, you know, a tremendous number of young women in the States say they're not feminists and they don't want that label. And I'm talking about progressive young women, you know, whereas when I was in college, we all were feminists, you know, big changes were afoot and we were excited about them and they were important. To say you were a feminist wasn't the total definition of who you are, but you were like, that's important. And now every time I see something, it's so alienating you know, in America, anyway, the culture is made in two cities. It's made in New York. It's made in L.A. We're weird in these cities. I'm in L.A. Weird place. New York, weird place. They're unusual places. Less and less so. Less and less so. But the culture of a typical person you might run into in Los Angeles and a typical person you might run into in Nebraska is probably going to be very, very different. And so you have Hollywood making movies and television about families that they think, yes, the country can relate to this kind of a family. In L.A. we can, but in a large part of the country, that's that's not what they're going for. That's not their experience. And so they begin to see and they're right to see that Hollywood has contempt for them. You know, in America, if you're going to see a family Forget evangelicals, just a family getting dressed to go to church, a white family, they're getting dressed to go to church. You know, immediately they're going to be exposed as idiots. They're (laughs) going to be the butt of the joke or they're going to be the seat of evil. It's just such a tell that the rest of the show is not interesting. So I think that, you know, everything is driven by, you know, culture goes before politics, famous saying, and culture right now is very much of the notion that everybody should be a radical feminist. Everybody should have the same opinion on trans issues, even though it's an exciting, evolving, worldwide experience, the trans experience. So the notion that as part of feminism and related theories, systems, if you ever make that mistake, if someone ever says the name Bruce Johnson, 
um, by mistake that it's going to be an absolutely catastrophic act of violence against a trans person. Like we can all in our private lives and homes know that's not true. That boyfriend's parent who, who's known you for years and uses the wrong name or your parent's friend who uses the wrong name. You know what, people, that, that friend of your parents has known you since you were a baby. They know, they've known you since they found out it was going to be a gen, this gender or the other. They've known you when you were in diapers. It's going to be an act of conscious act to remember. And it's not an act of violence when they get it wrong. Unless it's an intentional, cruel thing. Okay, so there's a lot there. And let me see if I can summarize this. You broadly see people as well-intentioned. And that many of the incidents that are uh, perceived as acts of intolerance are actually just a result of people struggling to catch up with the changing sensitivities and sensibilities of the, uh, uh, the coastal standards for social behavior, not out of necessarily cruelty. And I think it's possible you're being too generous. I think there are two issues. One of them is there are actually cruel people. And that's part of the problem of the culture war, that it incentivizes really stupid, sometimes malevolent behavior from the people participating in it on, on both sides. And when, when the, the trans, whether it's transgender issue, women issue, or racial issues become a touchstone of cultural contention, and then you will get people who will, will, will score points by being mean, by being vicious. Yep. And that's further complicated by the other issue that our society, it's a pretty obvious point, has historically leaned towards exclusion based on race, ethnicity, gender, sexual preferences. I, I, at this point, I, I cringe at the word patriarchy, yeah. but it's... Human history, yeah, it's patriarchal. Right, right, and all that is an indelible part of our history and of the context in which we're having these discussions. And I don't think anybody here disputes that. But it does take me to an issue that I've, I've been trying to work out recently. We've recorded, I haven't released yet, an interview with Yuval Levine, who's an, a brilliant conservative thinker and scholar. He has a very clear idea of what it means to be a conservative and why, for instance, voting for Trump is the most anti-conservative thing that the conservative could right, do. Right, right. Good point. But it also challenged me to try and work out exactly where I'm coming from on, on certain issues. I, I always hated the tags left and right. I thought they're, they're useless and embarrassing, but... But liberalism, on all its complicated definitions, is an idea that broadly appealed to me. And as I think about it, I, I, I find, at least that for me, it's a sentiment of distaste towards anything that's oppressive, restrictive, mm -hmm. coercive. Basically, a distaste for anything that requires conformity. And it's that sentiment that makes me uncomfortable with the certain forces on the left and certain forces on the right. But if we're honest... We, we live in a society that has a tradition where social coercion was mostly coming from one direction, mm -hmm. ideologically, towards more restrictionism, more cultural uniformity, which is natural. This is how societies work. And this is something that we need to take into account when we talk about uh, trans issues, when we talk about uh, black issues. Having a society that accepts uh, openly gay men in every aspect of society is a totally dizzyingly new thing. So with things being so new, you can understand why people are suspicious that first, like I said, some people are just being mean, 
But second, that people who are seemingly trying to be more tolerant might still be working on very false assumptions that's based on the more restrictive, older, more conservative software that our society still runs on. You may rightly argue that this has led to many obnoxious overreactions, but the, the, the feeling is understandable. Well, it's always a question of revolution, isn't it? You know, are, is, is all of this in service to more liberation? Right. I mean, even in a, you know, armed conflict, is all of this in service of something much better for the people? Or is all of this just causing a lot of pain and destruction? And I do think about, you know, growing up in Berkeley, so near to San Francisco, the kind of early gay rights parades were very, in San Francisco, were very, very, very extreme and, and sex acts on the floats going by, things you would never see today in a mainstream gay parade. But I always think those men with that bravery started to push on a door that was slammed and locked shut, you know? And so that now in the last 10 years, someone can just gently push it and it opens all the way the way we want it to. It wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been um, really, really extreme and to many people outside of the gay male community in San Francisco, shocking events. But I will say about the cruelty, you know, we're always talking about people getting canceled and for very minor things. And everybody's, can you believe this person got canceled? And I'll say, you know, that's, that is shocking. What's more shocking is that the extreme people don't get canceled. Hmm. The people that the, the culture wants a binary, the culture wants trans hating people and good trans accepting people that are willing to do whatever it takes to, to have a fight. And these are not representative of the way most people feel, you know, about things. So the culture is always going to reward at this moment somebody who's on either extreme end. They're going to be able to be published. They're going to have platforms. They're going to have all of that. And then the kind of mild-mannered librarian makes some small mistake and she's out of her career before she gets her retirement. That's the one that can be savagely, savagely sacrificed to the gods. So I think the whole culture right now is set up for that cruelty. Funny, I always tell Vanessa how much I hate quoting things on, on the podcast, but, but I just can't help myself because you really <laughs> reminded me, um, and partly because in the context of talking about Yuval Levine, this quote from Edmund Burke, he obviously is writing about the French Revolution. Here it is. The revolutionaries have mistaken the external signs of despotism, like nobles and priests, for the causes of it. And so, as often happens in history, have fought the wrong enemy and may turn out to embody the very evil they seek to combat. Right. I guess the point is that it's more in the nature or attitude of the left to be driven by moral purity or maybe ideological purity, whereas the right is much more guided by, I guess, aesthetic purity. I notice young people using this term, the aesthetic. What do you mean by that? I guess a, a, a devotion to a certain... Be type of beauty or, or, or a mm -hmm. style more than it is to uh, specificity of ideas or theory. Whereas for the left, it really is about constantly striving towards this ineffable, unattainable, abstract concept of equality and, and justice. And as long as the left is committed to the purity of the theory, to the purity of justice, it will inevitably end up sacrificing more and more people because no human 
can really live up to it. But on the other hand, it's exactly having this perfect mold that you hold against society that that leads to progress, mm-hmm. that improves things, that has allowed us to legalize gay marriage, that has allowed us to abolish slavery and ultimately abrogate Jim Crow. And it's a real necessary tension. And listeners know that I spend maybe way too much time losing every shit because of the 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 crap that's happening on the left right now but i guess i guess you you inspired me to push back against you as is in the nature of contrarians and point out that the revolutionary instinct and this hyper idealism is important sometimes and it does matter we should be afraid of a hyper revolutionary society but we should also be afraid of a complacent one well exactly and i think the american intellectual left is so so influenced by you know, sort of French theory, sort of tired, clapped out French theory from like existentialism on and through Derrida and Foucault, right. or Foucault and Derrida, I guess I would say. And, and I don't think they even realize when you go on a college campus and you'll see some person lecturing from a perspective of diversity in America and how they've been um, sort of trapped in the idea structure of white males And then they have this new way of thinking about the world that's liberated them. And I'm like, did anybody tell you that Karl Marx was a white male? Like, <laughs> you know, and that and, and if you go through everything you're saying from critical race theory on back, that is a you know, group of thinkers that were emerging after the Second World War in France and you know, in, in Algeria for uh, Derrida's point, when the world just seemed the bleakest, even though it, the war had been won, They'd been a genocide. Europe was impoverished. A bomb, the, you know, the, the atom bomb had been unleashed. And there was just a fatalism and a sense of um, that everything is, you know, the, the human life, the experience, even though they go on to live the experience, that, that the idea, if they can find the right idea, express it correctly, use the correct words, that they can fix things. And that's a kind of limited, we're all, you know, all my life, even to this day, I'm always looking for, is there just one theory I can hang on to? You know, like I'm very pro-union. And so it's like, if I just always, and then one of my sons was saying to me the other day that he thinks, he said, mom, I think you glorify unions. And I was like, oh, I failed as a mother. <laughs> you know, you want that one thing that's always the right answer, you know, and we don't really have that anymore. And so we're having to think our way through things. And, and the most important thing, I tell this to conservatives, young conservatives or young sort of people who are sort of trying to figure themselves out and they've been raised kind of in a tr- conventional leftist way. Don't, well, I guess it's going back to Edward Burke. Don't mold your ideas just because you hate the other ideas. Like being anti-critical race theory is not an idea. Right, right. That, what, what, what is that? They're just going to, well, I hate critical race theory and critical race theories in the schools. What do you mean by that? And, and what is it a response to? And, and what might have come before it? You know, so it's, it's very, very hard to think for ourselves. It's very scary to get it wrong. And, and yet we move forward, you know, as I was saying in the beginning, you know, technology and medicine and the things that keep us alive, keep moving forward. And, Um, I just always think of um, when 9-11 happened, uh, 
I had never in my life before or since put out an American flag. That just, I grew up in Berkeley. It wasn't done, you know? And when that happened, and I just remembered, oh, there's a realtor in the neighborhood that always puts a little um, American flag, a little plastic flag in front of everyone's house, and that I had saved those in the garage. And I remember going and getting the flag and putting it in our front yard, just a small flag, and feeling this is a real turning point in my life to feel so American that I'm putting a flag out. Um, it's, it's just was a, it was a very sort of meaningful point. And America, for a brief couple of years, pulled together in a way I'd never seen in my lifetime. Now, granted, within that, um, there turned out there were a lot of Americans who had never heard of Islam, and they just thought that Islam was this thing that went around bombing people, you know? <laughs> and they had no, to this day, I don't think there's a conception that it's a world religion, it's an Abrahamic religion, it's probably more in, in line with what people believe or how they were raised um, than they even know. So there was that, and there was a lot of suppression of speech around that. But, you know, I, I think that it, when we get our big challenges, people do kind of, uh, you know, stand together against them. Although when you stand too close together, you get the Patriot Act. Yes, 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 which we're still living with in many respects. Yep. But when you're so afraid, that's what you do. You know, when you're that afraid. And I remember thinking, oh, at the time, you know, two little kids, listen to my phone calls, open my mail, I don't care, whatever it is, so that we don't see 3,000 people incinerated at their work morning, you know? But if you don't have that privacy, if you don't have the right to privacy, then everything, then you're going to go straight to a very totalitarian state because you have nothing if you don't have your private ideas and thoughts. So, yeah, a lot of bad things came from it for sure. I'm going to pivot slightly to another potentially <laughs> turning point moment in American history, which is right now what we're living through in the in the pandemic. And uh, I was listening to your conversation with Sam Harris. I think it was one of the more recent ones. And you guys were you you brought up this comment about yeast, really, like the, the fact that yeast was out of uh, stock in American supermarkets is like really yes. like blowing your mind because like it feels like we are getting back to basics in some way. And you said this this line, and I think it was like a kind of like a throwaway line, but for some reason it really just like stayed with me. And I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the awkward thing of reading it to you, but you said... Um, the Not awkward to me. <laughs> <laughs> you said, the way I grew up, you live totally in your head, but then you get to a point when you realize that you have to be in your body too. And then you kind of went on and kept talking about like the, the being in our homes and the way we live in our homes. But for me, that line was so interesting. I felt like there was like a whole memoir in that line. Like mm -hmm. you grew up living the way I grew up by living in my head. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot and wanting wanting to write about more and just never finding the time to sit down and, and, and noodle on it. And so I would love to, to have you unpack if there's like if there's a story in there, I'd love to have you talk about this idea. Well, there, my father was he never learned to drive a car. He never played a sport. He never watched a sport. He was just an egghead. He was a thinker. That's what he did. He thought and he wrote and he read books. And um, he would have been happy to just be a brain, like kind of rolled around yeah. to different places instead of having to take care of his body yeah, or whatever. That's how I used to call myself a brain, like a brain in a jar, just like going through the universe. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and that was how I grew up. And that, um, you know, you think, therefore you are. But and modern life makes it so possible to be disembodied. You don't have to 
cook anything or grow anything or in increasingly sew anything. I mean, sewing and repairing things in my childhood was a, just a normal part of middle-class life. You didn't have fast fashion that you wore for a weekend and fell apart and had chains of abuses tied to it. You were, you were, had that level of connection to the world that you were kind of in it. You were in it in a more physical way, even in my, you know, my mother was doing all those things. But I think that truly being in your body as well as in your mind, but really being in your body and being a cancer patient, I think about this a lot, that you can't, when I first, and I've had cancer a long time, very bad cancer. And when I first got it 18 years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to have my body, that's not important. You know, it's my spirit, my soul, my mind, and, and they can poke these needles in and they can fill me with these drugs or surgeries. And I'm not going to um, take that in on some deep way. And then the turning point realizing you can't be that way. Like this is your body. These things are happening. They're being done to heal a specific thing. Um, if it's a kind of a traumatic kind of event or surgery, you know, your body will, there's that new book. I don't know if you've read it. The body keeps the score. Have you read that? It's about trauma. It's a big bestseller. And it's about how traumas in our life, emotional traumas, that aren't resolved or talked about or worked through, they lodge in our bodies. Not in the idea that they start cancer if you worry, but that we hold things in certain, you know, if you do yoga, all of a sudden you do one pose and you're like, something's opening up to you, a memory or something. And that we need to be, we need to be both. We need to be fully embodied and we need to be um, in our mind and in our spirit as well. And again, modern life with these damn computers you know, this, this absolute epidemic of anxiety and depression in teenagers. Uh, you know, I gave my kids the damn iPhone. It was like in modern life, you had to have the iPhone. And those things are so addictive. They are addictive to me. I'm 59 years old. I'm addicted. I'll start checking something and checking something and checking something. And someone comes in the room, oh, did you find what you were looking for? oh, I didn't even look for that. Like I just found a link to an old game show and that led me to this. And then I thought, what about that? And then a tweet came in <laughs> and then a text came in and it's worthless. It's just completely worthless. And it raises your anxiety. You're not creating in that time. You're not doing something in that time. You're not alone with a book in a library, deeply thinking about this. And, and it's very anxiety producing and we're all crack addicts. We are crack addicts, you know, going 24 hours without checking the phone. It's really hard for us, you know, and if you have a social media account that you use, you know, I'm always seeing people like, I'll be off all social media for the next two weeks. The next day they're tweeting their hearts out, you know, nobody right. is like, like, why knuckle it for the flight over there, wherever they're going. But as soon as they land in this very remote place, you know, and I found that even with Twitter, you start talking to yourself in the 160 characters, hmm. you know, you start, it shapes your, and for me to be a reader, I figured out, I have to put my phone downstairs, just even seeing it, like, mm, you know, I've read five pages and then can I check my phone now? Is that, that's the point of living, not reading? Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. all of the, those kinds of activities just uh, I, they just call you to the surface. And so you can never actually mm -hmm. be kind of go deep and you can never actually be, 
embodied and present in 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 your life because it could just well sk- goes my, by. one of my big mentors Bob Archer um, who's you know probably eighty by now and it was when reality TV was kind of really getting popular and I said Bob what do you think of that and he said it's so shallow it's mesmerizing hmm. I was like oh that is a perfect yeah. statement there's mesmer you've yeah. been mesmerized by these shallow clickbait reality TV, you know it's not deep, you know it's not enriching, you know it's going to make you feel worse, but you're under a spell, almost, a spell of addiction. And that keeps us, you know, it's one thing to be in your mind when you're just constantly reading like 18th century history, okay, (laughs) you know, you still should like be exercising, but to be in your mind because you're just relentlessly clicking. Yeah is is not even to be anywhere really you're just a servant to those people it's not even really being in your mind like being in your mind in in the good way i would say as 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 also somebody who's uh putting very very little attention to to the the rest of the body and and in fact i tend to harm it with with lack of exercise and and oodles of alcohol but the Classic combination. <laughs> uh, ideal. Um, <laughs> and and so sometimes I, I add to it like lack of sleep. But the triumvirate. The ideal place is where you have dialogues with yourself. When you're when you're um like alone, so sometimes even bored, so you start creating your, your own world, your own mm-hmm. your own internal arguments. That's being in your mind the good sense. That's why still reading a book I think is is much preferable to listening to one because There's something passive about listening. But when you read, you start having this dialogue with yourself and you find, oh, I don't agree with this. Oh, this challenge is something I've thought. You really find yourself talking. But when you're on social media, you're not really in your head. You're not really having any conversations. Maybe you're in your eyes, but you really you're in this liminal state. Yes, a liminal state. It's a liminal state. That's well said. And you'll just... And not to put aspersions on others, I'm exactly the same, but sometimes I'll sit down like in a waiting area or a park or something and you'll watch other people and they'll sit down and they'll be like the first three seconds, they're like, hmm, I'm going to look at the tree and there's a child. And then it's like the hand goes down, the phone comes and then they're not in the park anymore. And I'm yeah. it's completely guilty of that. So... And and you don't even notice it happening. You're just like you. you it's just like you black out, and black then you wake out, up, and then like how did I get here? Yes. And then kids are getting into, and adults too, finding these really dark content and feeling too ashamed to tell anybody about it. Maybe it's like really extreme pornography that they get hooked onto, and they can't find a way back out of it, and they have a lot of shame over that. Um, it's just very. When you say can't back out of it, you mean because once they've discovered it, the, the, they, their new threshold is like their threshold has been pushed up and now they can't really go back to your normal sex appetite? That's what I hear from a lot of young people that I talk to that um, wherever you are, porn will meet you, you know? So you, this, okay, this is okay. Now I'm bored. Um, what about this? Oh, there's porn for that. There's porn for that. And this whole thing about young women. Um, young people thinking that a really good first sexual encounter with someone when you're young, you're, you don't know a lot. It's not like you're jaded 40 year old looking for extreme, you know, outrageous pleasures. It's going to involve oral sex with the man choking the woman by the neck that this, which was just obviously a kink in a niche community up to like 20 years ago. And people who enjoyed that and found each other, there weren't a lot of them. 
all of a sudden it's become this de rigueur thing that is profoundly traumatizing, probably deadening to the young man. It's probably moral stain for him too. He probably carries that a long time. And then they don't really know what to do with that and what to do with that experience. And this is a place where feminism has really failed. You know, feminism for a while was very anti-sex and it was boring for that. And then sex positivity came along. And now they're like, well, pornography is great. I love pornography. I'm too old to be like really titillated by pornography, but I'll take a look. And I'm like, these are clearly trafficked women. A lot of them, a lot of them, these are not empowered, tax paying, 401k having, dinner party throwing, consciously choosing sex workers. These are women in desperate situations linked up with the worst men in the world and creating these, these images and they're having these experiences, which are, I'm sure a lot of them, they're totally disassociated from their bodies for. And, and I think feminism has completely failed young women, women in not saying, you know, this is not the place to begin learning about your sexuality. I have a number of friends who are really strong activists in defense of sex workers. One of them is a cam girl herself. It is it is very complicated because on the one hand, I'm 100% of the belief that sex workers should have the freedom yes. to pursue their preferred vocation. But there is, there is really a question of, of course, there is some impact that they will experience just by virtue of participating in that world. Even if they are doing so entirely out of their own volition and there is no coercion involved. Now, of course, you can argue that there's always some coercion involved, the economic necessity or whatever. But for the sake of argument, let's assume that for some women, this is a completely uh, self-empowered choice. They had a multitude of options available to them, and they decided to go with sex work. It's, even in that situation, it certainly impacts your your sexuality. And, 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 and you could say that whether or not this is a sacrifice worth having is is up to them and their choice. The thing is, and this is where I'm constantly frustrated by our conversations about sex, as somebody who's just mentioned, I'm motivated by, uh, by a distaste for restrictionism. I don't think society really affords anyone a true sense of liberation to do what they want when it comes to sex. There are too many inhibiting institutions and ideas and conversations that do try to push and shame you from one direction to the other. And they are, those ideas are always in tension with each other. They are always contradictory and 100% of the time, like intellectually, emotionally oppressive. And that drives me crazy because you see those pressures coming first from the old conservative right of, I, I don't even want to think about sex type of puritanism. <laughs> right. But then you see this new form of of sexual oppressiveness coming from the left in the form of this is what a liberated woman looks like. This is what a liberated woman acts like. And that goes to your point that if a quote unquote liberated woman wants to be at home and and, and leave her job to be with her kids during the pandemic, it's automatically seen as social pressure that needs to be corrected for and not as something that could possibly be a personal choice. So when you take this into the question of sex work, conversation gets even more muddled because people are more uncomfortable having having that discussion whether because sex makes people uncomfortable or or because sex work makes people uncomfortable or because people are uneasy being confronted with their own 
dark side when it comes to sex. And I think as a result, we're criminally letting these women down. No, nobody is trying to open a space for them to really figure out what they want to do and do it in a, in a safe and, and protected way. I completely agree. And I think that the current discourse, if you will, is not a global perspective. That the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of women that, that do sex work are not like working also on their PhD in philosophy. They are in the most dire situations that, that we can't even really imagine. And that in any way, trying to go, if, if someone from the outside wants to help, in any way to come from a perspective of we're not, obviously not shaming you for doing that. Of course, they don't shame for that. But, you know, hey, let us help you be an empowered sex worker. They don't want to be sex workers. They don't want to be with man after man in a room. You know, it has traumatized them. And, and so I think what's, what feminism has done that has been profoundly good and that I never thought they would achieve in my lifetime, and they did, so account me wrong, was the idea that a young woman could have a sexual encounter with a man she's not really involved with. And maybe then another encounter with another man, you know, a couple of days later, and that this wouldn't be a stigma. Oh, she's a slut. She's loose. She's not, no one cares about her, you know, and that she's, you know, the dialogue when I was growing up, oh, the women who do that, they just are looking for love and they can't find love and they're not going to get it this way. That women are understood to have their own sexual appetites, their own personal sense of morality but even still when you really get into it with a young woman you really start talking and i have found very often that they'll start saying this has not been a good experience for me you'll always see that that freshman college girls are doing all these things that they think they're supposed to do and they're so liberated and by sophomore year they've been kind of traumatized and they they leave that culture a little bit so I don't think there's any voice right now telling young women that, you know, you, it, get, going into the fastest lane possible in your earliest years of your sexual life, you know, and I still have, I often have to think to myself, if I have, if even I have any stigmas against the worker, the sex worker, I have to confront myself because sometimes I do feel that. And I say, well, why am I confronting her in my mind as doing something and not the men? You know, why is it always the woman who's carrying the moral, you know, perspective of it? And certainly I, and I always think, you know, you're talking about cam girls and that's obviously much safer, much better. I think obviously than you know, getting in a room with a man you don't know as a right. woman is very, 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 very dangerous. And often they basically run their own business, yes. essentially. Exactly. And they're able to do a lot of things that they want to do um, because of that. And I, you know, I often thought to myself about it at one point when it was kind of really becoming the cam girls or whatever. And I was like, why is it not why is it totally fine to do a somersault with your body or a dance with your body or, you know, to go off the high dive? But, oh, the minute you use your body in a, for sex, this is a not allowed way to use your body. You know, so it's kind of, you know, we're kind of changing and all that for the better. But I, I think that what I see, the number one thing I see 
around these issues, and I see we have to stop soon, but around the issue of um, young men and young women is a profound loneliness. And that there's a kind of nurture and sustenance in a, in a relationship, same sex, opposite sex, trans, not trans, in a relation, you know, that's going to go for the rest of your life or for six months, there's a real nourishing of the soul to be known on that level and to keep showing more and more of yourself in a place of safety and trust. And then to add sex to that, which adds all that other level of bonding. Um, I think that there's this loneliness. And I think that there's in a way, there's nothing lonelier in a way than that kind of very anonymous sex to just kind of get off or be this or be that and then go off to your other thing. Um, I think it's lonely. It's a loneliness that, that people can't even admit because you don't want to sound like you're a prude, you know, like, oh, I shouldn't have been having sex with, I should have found a boyfriend, you know, you don't want to, to say lay that trip on anybody. But I think that that something's missed. There's a lot of things that are missing right now for young people. And I think that's one of them. The idea that a series of relationships maybe punctuated by a different life, different style can feed the soul in a way that that this kind of current thing doesn't. Although I will say the my friend, um, uh, the, the sex worker, she, uh, the, the cam girl, she says that. 90% of the time she finds herself just talking to the, to the yes that's an article there was a big piece in the states recently about um these new kind of cam girl yes they'll do like a sexual act you know but then the men want to just be follow them while they like water their plants chat with them get their things ready to go out and i thought my god the loneliness the loneliness to pay that high actual cost money cost to just be with a woman as she putters around in a non-sexual way and chats with you that is a pretty profound thing and i have found the same thing too when i've interviewed that yes there's a an immediate drive to get off in this encounter but after that and it's not even i'm not talking about it's probably your friends aren't either sexual talk they just want to be known and they want to be accepted and with this person they'll never meet. Right. And who the next hour is going to be watering her plants with another guy, you know? Right. I know you need to go, but if you have the time for just one more question, uh, we, we'd like to talk about trauma. All right, let's close on trauma. That's always a good one. <laughs> Keeping it light, we've been talking a lot about these kind of conflicting messages and narratives that you get as a woman in the world, from yeah. how you're supposed to act according to feminism, how you're supposed to act according to more like traditional values. And um, one of the ways that I think is currently uh, that I'm feeling is like a conflicting pressure is how to acknowledge trauma that's happened to you as a woman. Because I think right now we're currently, if you're, if you're like an intellectually minded, rational person right now, you see kind of what's happening on the left of this, like, 
I think our our friend calls it concept creep of trauma, where everything becomes traumatic, yes, and ev- exactly. right. Yes. And so it almost becomes like the word is cheapened. Yes, the word is, and it's embarrassed. Like it's embarrassing as someone who's like trying to process like a trauma that has happened to me in the past and trying to be more open about it and and talk about it. It almost feels embarrassing mm-hmm. to admit it. And I'm finding that it this this um, charged culture is actually getting the way of in the in my way of kind of dealing with it because one of the biggest hurdles I've found is acknowledging that it was traumatic and it was it was a big deal to me even if it's not a big deal in like the grand scale of the universe it was a big deal to me and so I'm wondering if you have haven't felt that well I've had an experience um it's interesting when I was 16 maybe I had just turned 17 uh probably 16 I had an incident that now we would call very seriously attempted date rape. I was, I'm so old. There was no notion. If you went out on a date, whatever happened, that was on you. You know, you should have screened the person better. And it didn't end in a rape. And I ended up being able to go back home. And so this is when I was 16. I'm 59 now. And I would sort of tell that story to friends just to say, well, now, you know, when they explained that date rape was a thing, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I had, I've never in my life shed a tear about this event ever. And uh, at the beginning of Me Too, I wrote about that event. And, and then we have a big podcast out here called The Daily for the New York Times. And they asked me, it was the first time they'd ever had somebody that wasn't a Times writer uh, to, to do it with Michael Barbaro, such an incredible interviewer. And I showed up, it was right by my house. They were in LA, um, a little studio by my house. And I showed up and I'm so much older than the people who make this podcast. And we're talking about something that happened in 1978. And Michael Barbaro turned to me and said, so what happened? And all of a sudden, I just felt this well of pain and sorrow and shame. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to do this interview. And I kept having to stop you know, and, and there were other things going on in my family's life at the time. And so I was just trying, and those things were also kind of awful, not sexually awful, but really hard to deal with. And, and I just realized for like 40 years, I, the dialogue has been, that wasn't traumatic. That wasn't traumatic. That wasn't traumatic. Someone who's attacked on the street or someone who's not able to get away or this or that. But I was a 16-year-old girl, and I didn't have sexual experience, you know? And all of a sudden, and I didn't have experience of boys forcing things on me that I didn't want. And, and so it is traumatic. And, and I think the good part of this kind of moment we're in is that people are beginning to acknowledge maybe these things were traumatic. Maybe I do carry it in a way that I don't even understand. Maybe it is time to talk to someone about it, to learn how do you work through an old trauma. But then on the other hand, as you're saying, the term, what a powerful word, trauma, and it's attached to such, you know, that I was re-traumatized by seeing this word in an article. You know, the initial trauma was learning the word (laughs) a week ago, and now I see it again, and now I am re-traumatized. And So I hate that it's cheapened and that we almost need a different word than trauma because trauma is so still so profound. But super. um, Yeah, I would just really my recommendation. I don't know if you believe in psychotherapy or something like that, but I found with many things in my life 
to just sit in the presence of someone who's non-judgmental about a decision you made or whatever, and who's almost pushing you towards the emotion mm -hmm. of it, sort of, you know, the minute you say, but it didn't really bother right. me, the therapist is saying, oh, can we slow down? Can we look at that? And kind of lifting it up and back out into the light of day so it's not a part of you anymore, so you can put it to the ground, you know? I, that to me is, because just gritting your teeth, as I did, and thinking it wasn't going to affect you, um, obviously was not mm -hmm. true. Obviously, I was carrying that for a very long time and probably still am to some level. But I think that, you know, with these experiences, we have to, have to, have to find ways to, whether it's making art about them, whether it's sharing them, whether it's finding a therapist, whether it's finding a really good friend, Oftentimes for young people, it's finding someone who's older. <laughs> you know, you find that woman who's 20 years older than you are, 25 years older, and you think she's never seen it. She's seen it all. You know, she's just old, but she, she's had friends. She's, and have that person say, yeah, I really hear you. I really understand you. And giving that trauma, it's almost like the trauma's abused child because it's like, go away. I don't want to hear from you. And, you know, and the weird thing about that one is I suffered many worse right. things in my life, but that one stuck. So that's that we will end on therapy, <laughs> talking, you know, whatever it is to kind of dredge it up, not with a spirit of reliving it over and over and over. You know, sometimes you'll know someone, you could just instantly tell they have told this story 300 times. They know where to take the break. They're not, you know, they're not engaged with it on any level, but to speak at it, you know, really connected to your heart, that's the path out, I think. I think. I don't know any other path. And with that level of trauma, I thank you thank both. You. Caitlin. <laughs> this was so interesting. You guys are fantastic. Interesting people, different from the crowd. <laughs> thank you. And uh, it was great to meet you. Ditto. Thank you. you. You really are one of my favorite writers right now and i'm oh, so you. glad you joined us thank you i loved it thank you for listening to uncertain things follow us on uncertain.substack.com and wherever you get your podcasts we are uncertain pod on the social media and if you're feeling generous give us a five-star review on apple podcasts tell your friends and enemies and until next time stay sane